As you know, we're diving into the Gospel of John. Uh, the title of the whole series is That You May Believe. And this morning, uh, we're looking at the, the first part of the introduction, uh, which summarizes the whole book. And then next week, we'll finish the introduction through verse 18, which again is a summary of the whole book. And then 14 through 18 is again a summary of the summary. And so John starts out uh, presenting a picture, and it's the reality of Jesus. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard uh, a pointless joke. If, you've, if you have elementary age children, then I know that you have uh, heard a pointless joke, but at least they're cute enough to make listening worthwhile. What I find horrific are adults who tell pointless jokes or stories, and I just want you to know how I feel about it. I find it horrifying and one of the worst things that you can do in life. But I still remember, uh, I can go back this far still, I still remember being on my senior trip in high school, towards the end of a long day of travel, I went to a small Christian school. There was only 13 of us, and I think two didn't make it on the trip. And so 11 total people. And so we're all in one van. Everyone's fighting off boredom. And of course, stories and jokes are being told. So one girl boldly states in the middle of this dragging time driving through Tennessee, nothing against Tennessee, but just dragging along. She says, I have a great joke. And I'm a sucker for a great joke. And so she had my attention. She then tells the most boring and long setup I've ever heard in my life. And I remember thinking, I hope this is funny, but I should have known better. Um, she ended with an undetectable punchline, and the only reason I knew the joke was over is because she started laughing. Um, I couldn't help myself, I still can't, and I told her that was the worst joke I'd ever heard. It was weird and poorly executed, random story. And I told her, she was a friend of mine, I said, I will never listen to a joke you tell again. I have not. I will never listen to a joke because pointless jokes drive me crazy. And I know I've just opened myself up to a world of hurt when I say that because every kid here is thinking, got him, you know. <laughs> so the fact is most of us want to know what the point of something is and are a bit frustrated when we can't find the point or that there is not one. We want to know why. And I know for me and I think most people, we love it when the why is clearly given it helps us zero in on what is critical, what we should be getting out of it. Well, the Gospel of John gives one of the most direct and detectable points or purposes ever stated in Scripture. He tells us blatantly in John 20, 31, but these are written, speaking of Jesus' signs, because John is, is focused on one thing, to present Jesus as Christ. And so he says, but these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. That you may believe is his purpose. That we can fully understand that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is the Redeemer. And that believing we can have life through his name. And he uses the word name because name meant that you were believing in who he is and what he has done. Now, John was the last gospel written. He wrote it towards the end of the first century, and he did so with a very singular focus. It, it appears simple. When you read John, it, it seems so straightforward. Uh, but as Leon Morris remarks, it is one whose depths can never be plumbed. Because his singular focus that he has presenting Christ doesn't even uh, doesn't negate the, the reality that he's confronting errors and heresies on multiple fronts. He is just singularly adamant 
about distinguishing the person of Jesus Christ from anyone and anything else. There are There were those around then who could not tolerate the idea of the incarnation of Jesus. They couldn't handle God coming to earth. There were those that would not accept the truth of our Lord's humanity. So he sets those truths clearly in the forefront. He unapologetically presents Jesus as God in the flesh, here to bring the eternally planned redemption to humankind. And the gospel of John is a gospel after all, and so the purpose is to to bring forth the message of the Christian faith as it centers in the historic figure of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, his gospel stands apart from the other gospels as he takes a different look and a different perspective. There are writers and critics through all the ages that have, have grabbed hold of that difference and used that to try to attack Scripture to undermine the truth of what he's saying. And the reality is they're missing a very important thing, that every gospel was written and inspired, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit to complement each other, to help us understand completely who Jesus Christ is. Now, because of his different perspective, uh, we're going to find in John's narrative that there's more explanation, there's more application than in the other gospels. And he has a higher proportion of discourse, of dialogue back and forth, written there. It's clear that the Old Testament played a significant part in his thinking. He is a Palestinian Jew. In other words, he's he's a Jew from Israel, from right in that area. That's where his home base is. And that's obvious as you read through his gospel. And it's not that the Old Testament is something that he grabs quotes from. That's what our world loves to do. Grab a random quote, use it to push their purpose. It's not the quotes. it's It's this It's the fact that he's obviously absorbed the teaching of the Old Testament, and that comes out in his gospel. However, his gospel doesn't ignore the Hellenistic thought or thinking of the time. It doesn't avoid or ignore everything that's going on around the world. Actually, you can know that he's a Palestinian Jew, that he's there, that he was an eyewitness, that he was an apostle. It's obvious in his gospel, yet everything he writes about touches on what the world is wrestling with. His geographical backdrop is different than the other Gospels. He focuses in on the south. He's in Judea. He's in Samaria. And he does a lot less of what takes place in Galilee. But overall, his backdrop is the early Christian church. He is sharing the truth. The fundamental ideas that he shares are the basic Christian ideas. As John MacArthur notes, in short, John presents Jesus as the eternal word, word, Messiah and Son of God, who through his death and resurrection brings the gift of salvation to mankind. People respond by either accepting or rejecting the salvation that comes only through believing in him. And so John begins his gospel going back uh, to the beginning of time. Really, he goes back before the beginning because he states that The Word exists before the beginning, before anything we can know, to let us see the reality of Jesus, and that reality begins with His self-existence. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, 
and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Now, the use of word to describe Christ would have resonated in both Greek and Jewish thought. As Homer Kent notes, they should have understood that just as words are the expression of thought, so to call Christ the word was to regard him as the communication of the divine wisdom, the personal revelation of the truth of God. The concept or personification of the word was also heavily used in the Old Testament. As you read through the Old Testament, it's the word of the Lord came to this person. The word of the Lord came here. The word of the Lord in creation. D.A. Carson remarks, in short, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. And the personification of that word makes it suitable for John to apply it as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own son. And so with that, John makes clear, first and foremost, that Jesus has always been existing as God. That's verses 1 and 2. He boldly claims that Christ is deity, which is an essential non-negotiable tenet of the Christian faith. There are a host of religions that confront that, that have problems with that. One that we see over and over again, the Muslim faith. By the way, they believe in Jesus. They don't believe he's God. They believe the Gospels, or at least most of them. They don't believe he died and rose again and that he brings redemption. He's a prophet. There's been many people through the ages that believe in a historic Jesus, but don't believe that he's God. He was a good teacher. He was something other than what he said. And, and John says out front, Christ is deity. He does so by carrying us to the beginning of time, to existence, and declaring the Savior, the Word, existed before that, showing that he is eternal, and there never was a point when he did not exist. It's hard to miss the connection to Genesis 1-1, which starts by saying, in the beginning, God. So just as God was before the beginning happened, so the Son of God was before time, existing in perfect union with the Father and Spirit, never having a beginning. And so I wrote it this way, he's never becoming, he's always being. And that's critical. It's a thought that actually as humans we cannot quite put our mind around. Anyone who thinks they can suddenly is struck by the fact that they can't because there is no beginning, there is no becoming for God. Jesus, the Word, is God. Uh, the first verses make Him distinct in person from the Father and Spirit, yet one in perfect unity. First, He says, in the beginning was the Word. In other words, He's around, he's not becoming. And then the word was with God, and suddenly we see God the Father and the word is with him. And then it says the word was God. In other words, we understand that he's distinct in person, but one in unity. You're getting a glimpse of the Trinity, and John's painting it right out the, out the gate as he introduces his gospel. He then moves the conversation uh, to Jesus, the word's involvement in the start of the universe. And we see Christ existing as creator. It says, all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And just in case you miss it, when he says everything was made by him, he reiterates that point, right? He says again, now, without him, nothing was made that was made. In other words, 
No creative act took place without Jesus Christ. All things, individually, the word all is a Greek word, and, and the Greek has multiple words for all. The one that's used there drives the conversation to not all collectively, all y'all, not that kind of idea, but all individually. And so everything that was made, every person, everything that's taking place, everyone, but the idea is not in this collective whole, not thrown in a bag together, but instead all things individually were created through the active working of Jesus. It doesn't negate God the Father's involvement. You go through Scripture in Corinthians, you're going to find that God the Father is said to be the source, the ultimate source. Yet all creation passed through the intelligence and will of the Son of God, of Jesus. You go to Colossians, you'll see that. You go to Hebrews, and you'll see that as well. And so what we see is that John begins his gospel with his centered in Jesus Christ, and he starts off confronting heresy after heresy, saying he is God. And then he, he dives into what he's done. He says he's creator. He goes back to our beginning. John has now made abundantly clear that Jesus was personally the creator, so obviously not a created being. He has made clear that Jesus does not have a starting point. He is infinite. And so John moves forward in his proof of Christ's reality, showing that Jesus is existing as life. In him was life. Not that he came alive, but that he is the embodiment of life. And the life was the light of men. We're getting a connecting point here. Life and light go together. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And here is a crucial and bold statement of Christ's self-existence. This is a characteristic that only God can have to have life in themselves. Our whole universe, including us, fall into the category of becoming. Every single thing we look at, experience, has a starting point. It comes to life. It becomes, including us. There's a starting point of our existence, of our life. And so we are all reliant upon a source of life, which is God, who has life from within himself, depending on nothing for his life. God exists without any help from our universe or anything. We do not exist without help from our universe, without help from God, who is sustaining our universe. See, we need life. As Jesus, uh, and Jesus as God and the source of life, has come to this world also as a source of eternal life. Whenever John mentions life, and this is the, the fascinating thing about how he wrote, uh, the Greek is actually uh, in a simpler or, or not in a complicated wording. The grammar is not all convoluted. However, how he writes has always a deeper meaning that comes with it. So as he mentions life, he's not ignoring physical life at all. The fact of the matter is, is that Jesus is life. We are sustained by him. That's a, 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 a truth presented in other parts of Scripture. Hebrews 1 through 4, Colossians, and I might be wrong, 1, 1 through 2. Christ is presented as sustaining life, that we need him to have life, to breathe, to exist. 
As the world rejects God, as they push against him, as they scream against him, as they deny Christ, they're denying the person who literally sustains them. Yet, John is always looking deeper than that. And so, as he brings this idea of life, it's carrying us beyond the physical. He's bringing that eternal life, that eternal light. As one writer noted, Christ, the embodiment of life and the glorious eternal light, of heaven entered the sin-darkened world of men, and that world reacted in various ways to him. When it says that in him was life, it's the physical and the eternal. I was chatting with someone this week, and they were just they were just talking. Obviously, when you get on the it was actually a Zoom call, and you're talking with somebody, and they ask how Christmas season, all that stuff is going on. People are very religious in December. And so this person was talking, and they said, I respect all religions. As long as they're centered and following the good book. They didn't want to say the Bible. Generally following God. And in their mind, eternal life was seen being accomplished by some form of general faith. And I'm going to be honest, that describes our world today. The idea that everything is fine as long as I connect to some form of supreme being, as long as I have some semblance of following a good book, some type of faith, I'm fine. Everything's good. I have eternal life. I'm secure in heaven. I'll go see the big man in the sky mentality. And I want us to see something. John does not permit anyone that luxury. That if they were to read the gospel of John, the good book, they would know that that statement has no validity. John is making clear from the beginning, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, because only in Christ is there life and light. He alone is that truth and holiness that manifests against the darkness of lies and sin, and nothing in this world of darkness can overcome that light. Now, The Greek word that's translated comprehend is actually better translated as overcome. It has that idea. They didn't comprehend it was what they chose back in the day, but really the idea of they could not overcome that. The reality is darkness did not fail to understand the truth about Jesus. In fact, the forces of darkness understand him all too well. If you read through the Gospels, and you don't see it much in John, but the other ones, you'll see the demonic response to Jesus, and you understand that they knew exactly who he was and what he was doing. If you go to James 2.19, it speaks about the knowledge of demons. They both know the truth of Christ and believe it and shudder. The darkness, represented in in the person of Satan, has perfectly understood the judgment coming And thus he and his forces in this world have constantly attempted to stamp out the life and light given for humanity. He came into the world, he is light, and the darkness could not overcome it. As MacArthur notes, similarly, believers are eternally lost, not because they do not know the truth, but because they reject it. Anyone who rejects Christ, who he is, in the fullness of his character, as God as creator, as life, cannot be saved. As John 8, 24 records Jesus saying this, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. 
And here comes the, the central application, I believe, for the church as we look at the introduction to the Gospel of John. Obviously, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're hearing everything you need to hear. You need Jesus Christ to be saved. You need to believe in him as he is, not as you want to make him. But as a church, we've become far too casual about the person of Jesus Christ and the details of true belief. We've contented ourselves with a somewhat acknowledgement of who he is and have thus missed who he is. If you don't acknowledge Christ for how he's revealed in Scripture, his word, then you don't know Christ. You've missed him. He is God, equal in essence with the Father and the Spirit, but different in person. A thought that really is tough to process, I know, but it's a truth. Creation flowed through him without excluding in any way the hand or direction of the Father. And most importantly, life is feasible only through him. Our physical life is sustained in him. Our Savior holds everyone's breath in his hand. He sustains physical life. Yet even more crucial, eternal life is possible only through him and nothing else. The person I talked to who speaks of faith and, and they would have a somewhat Christian background as they talked about it, they don't have real faith. They don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. There is no other way. And sadly, we have become so complacent to the twists and turns of lightning or twisting who Christ is that we're letting the truth of the gospel slip right by people. John starts his gospel with hard-hitting facts that show the reality of Jesus. He starts from eternity past to paint an accurate picture of Christ. He now transitions to give a brief look at the initial testimony to Christ's earthly ministry, turning our attention to his physical witness. And actually, as you walk through John, it's not blatantly obvious, but as you work through, there is these eight kind of building witnesses of who Christ is. And John the Baptist is that first witness that John calls to court. He's going to call up Scripture. He's going to call up God the Father. He's going to call up what Jesus does. And so all of these are brought to bear. His language has that courtroom impression there. John is writing to prove Christ. And so proof one, his physical witness, verses 6 through 8, he says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. John the Baptist was the one chosen to herald the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry and is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, making things ready for the promised Messiah. His purpose was to testify of the light so that humanity would believe. Right in our introduction, John is already stating what his whole purpose is all the way to chapter 20. John is bearing witness of the light. Why? So that all men might believe, that we will believe. He's the first true prophet to appear in Israel in 400 years, and his style of preaching, which was very bold and confrontational, created quite a stir. It says in some of the other Gospels that all of Jerusalem was coming out to see him, that everyone had to hear him. 
People came from all over to hear him, to question him. Even a king whose behavior John condemned liked to listen to him. There's no denying that John the Baptist was unique. It says in Scripture that there was no one like one, no one greater than John up until the time that John arrived. There were even people who followed John so faithfully that they missed the Savior to whom John pointed or needed further instructions long after John walked the earth. You go to Acts 19 and you have Paul confronting disciples of John that that have technically missed the point. Through history, we know of his loyalists who persisted into the second century. That group of people actually made John into the Messiah. They chose to make John into something he was not. And so John the Apostle highlights here the purpose of John the Baptist, his special calling. But he also stresses the fact that John was not the Messiah. Instead, John the Baptist was sent by God. As I mentioned earlier, you can't negate the influence of John. You read in history, you read through Scripture, people came to see him. He made a stir. Uh, even at Christ's crucifixion, when Christ was preaching, after John was beheaded, the king that, that took his head off thought he, John the Baptist had come back to life. His, his life left an imprint on that culture and that society. But John records something about John the Baptist, and he wants everyone to understand it. He's sent by God with a very singular purpose, to prepare Israel for her Messiah's arrival. John was not on earth to exalt himself but was instead here to point to Christ. He was the witness for God. The point of his work was belief, so that all might believe. And so John, the apostle, brings his first witness to bear, someone that their culture would have known, would have understood, have felt the influence of his witness, someone that was human like them, As John MacArthur notes, people believe in Christ through the testimony of witnesses like John. They are the agents of belief, but Christ is the object of belief. And so as we're looking at the reality of Jesus, we've seen John uh, make a presentation to start out. He's going to drive deeper as he finishes out his introduction But he brings his first witness to bear, and it's John the Baptist. And he makes very clear that John the Baptist had a very singular purpose, to prepare the way for the Messiah, with not to prepare the way so people would be interested, but prepare the way so that people would believe in the Messiah, which then drives me to one thought or question when I consider John the Baptist. Are we active agents of belief, pointing to the only viable and true object of belief, Jesus our Lord. Because that's what John the Apostle is trying to make known to us. He's trying to say, hey, here's the first physical witness that I have for you. This is the one called by God to make way for the Messiah. Yet as Christ's church, as his bride, we can't walk away from the sting that's driving right there from John the Apostle that we have to then ask ourselves, are we witnesses? Are we agents of belief, pointing to the only viable and true object of belief, Jesus our Lord? I'm concerned that too many in the church have chosen to be on the inactive roster when it comes to bearing testimony of the Messiah. That they have found a way 
I think, to play in a different game. If you're going to look at active and inactive rosters, to not be there. To say, well, I'm injured, or I have other things to do, we're occupied. And, and John is, is trying to, to wake up the church as well. The Gospels are evangelistic. They, they are driving people to see Christ as the truth, to help us understand that without him there is no life. Yet throughout this, John is going to confront believers with their complacency. And that's really the, the thing that I'm hoping we understand and we feel conviction about, that as we look at who Christ is and the magnitude of that, that we don't get wishy-washy about who he is and what he has done, that we're not wandering into this general faith idea, that the conversations we walk into and, and present is not this idea of believing in some supreme being. That's not saving faith, by the way. John is making clear that saving faith rests strictly in Christ. And then he gives the first witness and shares what he's done. We're going to actually see more of, of John the Baptist. An active agent of belief are we. John starts his gospel by pulling back the curtain so that we can see the reality of Christ. The plan from all eternity is being introduced, and it is obvious that nothing from God is left to chance. Nothing was accidental, just as faith is no accident. But will we see the reality of Christ? And I know I'm sitting in church, and most people answer that question with, of course, we see the reality of Christ. Well, then comes the second question. Will we handle that truth in a biblically accurate way or casually manipulate it to fit our purpose? I know way too many people that I come in contact with in our world that are not proclaimed atheists. They're not advocating something else. But when they dialogue about Jesus Christ... There is no faith. They'll make a joke or two or a sly remark. In their mind, they're Christian, but in their hearts, they're lost. Why? They have not handled the truth, Jesus Christ, in a biblically accurate way. They've chosen just to manipulate it to fit their purpose, to fit their life. The reality of Christ should be the clarion call for the church to be active agents of belief, pointing to the only viable and true object of belief, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. And so as I'm here on a Sunday morning speaking to the church, I would say that's my final application, my final thought to share with you, and I hope it's a convicting one, that we would go back and examine our life in light of what John is sharing about Jesus Christ, and that we'll actually take an honest look on whether or not we are active agents of belief pointing to the only viable object of belief, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. Are we doing that? 